We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Greg Bantic. Greg is a Chinese medicine practitioner and acupuncturist in Australia. He's a longtime practitioner of the art. He's been involved both in teaching and in the administrative aspects of various acupuncture schools and uh, has a contemplative meditation practice, which also helps to inform his medical practice. We had some uh, email conversation a while back. I honestly can't remember what it was all about, but there was a phrase that came out of it about the causes and conditions of illness. And there was something about that phrase that just really struck a bell for me. And, and uh, so we want, I wanted to explore that with Greg. And that is what our show is about today. It's this conversation, it's this inquiry, really, into the causes and conditions of illness. You know, there's so many ways that we can go with this. And uh, so I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Greg, welcome to Everyday Acupuncture. Thank you, Michael. It's a a pleasure to talk to you again. Yeah, I've always enjoyed our conversations. You know, I I mentioned here just a moment ago that you're a longtime practitioner. I actually have no idea how long you've practiced or even what brought you into uh, practicing Chinese medicine. Can you give us a little background about what got you started and onto the road that you're on right now? This is my 41st year in clinic practice, and uh, I've been uh, teaching for almost as many. I was at, at university back in the early 70s studying psychology, politics, and philosophy, and um, I had taken some time off and was told by a friend that there were six free introductory lectures on Chinese medicine being offered in Sydney at the time. And I went along and I was really impressed with a philosophy that I had liked for many years, Asian, East Asian, 
philosophy, but a very practical way of applying it um, to help others. That really appealed to me. And at the end of the six weeks, I had a, an entrance exam into the college and I passed. Probably everybody did. And um, so I continued studying more with the idea that this was the only opportunity at the time that I knew of to study Asian philosophy. Um, I didn't really realize or, or have any sense of being a practitioner and certainly not a teacher at that time. But here I am several decades later and still fascinated. Yeah, it, it's funny how that goes. And yeah, there, there's such a fascinating philosophical aspect, which I suspect we're going to touch a bit on here uh, in this conversation. But there's also this incredibly practical application of that philosophy. At, at, at university, I was doing philosophy. It was very intellectually stimulating, but there wasn't really much practical application of it. And yet that seemed to be a major function of um, Asian philosophy was that its, it's uh, relevance or its enduring uh, interest to people was that it was useful in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. So coming back to this, this phrase that sparked the invitation to have you here on the show, causes and conditions of illness. Here in our modern world, we often think about genetics or we think about, you know, lifestyle or habit or things like that. When you're, you know, or if you've got a Buddhist perspective, you're, you're thinking whole up all kinds of other things about causes and conditions. When you're thinking about causes and conditions of illness, well, actually, I'm going to back up from that question. There's a question before that. I was going to ask you what you think about. But before that, the question that I have is... Um, Really, what brought you to looking at the causes and conditions of illness? What, what sparked your interest here? Uh, it's probably been many things, and it's something that's grown over time. And I, I am influenced by Buddhist thinking. So I, I, but it was more when people come into clinic and they seem unaware of or confounded by the symptoms that they're experiencing – and maybe a simple example is that they may say, I have a, a headache. Um, and when you ask them where their headache is, they often find it difficult to even say where it is, let alone to describe its nature. And in particular, any factors that may be aggravating it or relieving it. And uh, to me, in trying to work out how to treat something, those things of nature and location and aggravating and relieving factors are very significant. And um, that people wouldn't see that their headache was related to uh, loud noises at work or neck and shoulder tension from long hours of sitting at a computer. And that they, they it seemed to just to many people, their experience was more that it was just visited on them, that it came out of nowhere. And that the more I explored with people that headaches and, and other symptoms don't come from nothing, they come from somewhere, that they started to see a relation to the causes and conditions that would be leading to unpleasant symptoms or pleasant symptoms. 
And so it seems to lead to a more skillfully lived life. I've noticed a similar thing in clinic. Sometimes people actually are very aware of the um, location and the intensity and, and, and how it feels and all that. But a lot of times they really do seem at a loss. And, and they even at times are confused by the question of, well, just where does your head hurt? Or what is the sensation of the pain? I mean, even the idea that pain can have different sensations seems a bit confounding to some folks. Yes, yeah, exactly. And the other thing that, that I found is, you know, like, you know, like you, I think like any Chinese medicine practitioner, we're looking for some sort of pattern that, that often can actually hold contradictory sorts of experiences or symptoms, right? So, so we're often searching for what's the bigger picture here. And a lot of times mm-hmm. I find patients didn't realize that maybe a, a twisted ankle six months ago, oh, you know, that's when my hip pain began. Mm-hmm. These kinds yeah. of things, yeah. How's that helpful in the treatment process? Well, let me... Uh the, the way that going back and reading a couple of early texts like the uh, Yellow Emperor's Internal Classic or even the Shang Han Lun, which the Shang Han Lun influences a lot of the, the ways that I would write or think about a herbal prescription. Mm-hmm. Even there it says that, um, uh, you know, subject to wind and cold, we may experience a certain set of symptoms depending on where the wind and cold is and then the way that that wind and cold has been treated if it's appropriate the symptoms go away if it's inappropriate so they're um, given the wrong formula then these sorts of symptoms might emerge and in the Naging it it talks about external factors of um, climates and wind and damp and so on as influencing us Uh, I think implicit is that um, by the mood in a family or a workplace and so on all influence our health so to to then treat something it, it's maybe relatively easy to treat somebody's headache to resolve the symptoms of the headache but if it's something that is recurring and keeps coming back either say seasonally or associated with work habits or problems in a family, dynamic, for example, then it seems to me that a better treatment, a a more comprehensive treatment, is to look at what are the sorts of causes and conditions in that person's lifestyle out of which it's more likely that headaches are going to occur. And so a treatment then has to move out into uh, addressing or changing or modifying those causes and conditions, as well as just the prescription of a formula or the application of some points or moxa and so on. I have noticed in my own practice, um, and I'd say this is, this is more recent, that sometimes folks come in and, and they'll describe the thing that's bothering them. And, you know, and some other things, you know, we go into a pretty in-depth health history, sometimes I find that a person's symptoms 
are actually kind of a benefit to them. I mean, this is kind of a funny thing to say, and, and sometimes I feel like I have to be really careful when I'm working with patients because I, I, I want them to know that I'm taking seriously their problems. But let's just say maybe there's a food allergy going on, and there are certain foods that they eat, and, and it causes these problems. Sometimes it seems like these symptoms are... It's like the body, the body's always trying to do its very best. And it seems like sometimes these symptoms are the body asking for some help in a bigger way. And I have become concerned as a practitioner that if I take the symptom away with herbs or, or needles, then the thing that needs to be addressed is not going to get addressed. And, and perhaps I've actually done them a disservice. Are you following what I'm talking about with that? Does that make sense? I think I am following what you're talking about, and that's why I think that it's important to look at the kind of the backstory of what's going on, that just addressing the symptom, um, while the person may even consider that to have been a successful treatment, that that was holding the symptom in place or generating the symptom hasn't been addressed. And so it's it, on one on one hand i guess you can say it's a, a successful treatment on the other hand it's it's not successful in the sense of reducing the likelihood of reoccurrence or because the same causes and conditions are still in place that something else as a result of them won't come up again even if not the same set of symptoms well either it comes back or what worries me or concerns me is that it doesn't necessarily come back the same way but because there's still an imbalance now now the body's got to find another way to express it and mm. yeah, maybe they're headache free now but but there's something else that's going to arise as a result of things not getting set right so five years down the road they might have a bigger problem yes yeah i i, I would agree and Maybe this is also comes back to a definition of what health and doctoring is. That if we think that our job, and or, or even as a patient, that the uh, patient's job is to just get rid of symptoms, um, or a doctor's job is just to treat symptoms, or it kind of limits the project of what I think Asian philosophy offers us, which is what is a good human life. What is that? And, and it doesn't mean that a good human life is always symptom-free or always trouble-free, but a good life might be how do we live with and work with and learn from symptoms and hopefully have a, a, less, a life with less symptoms, um, not just physical ones either, but um, uh, you know, unpleasant or difficult um, mental states too. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just thinking of a patient I saw recently, um, and she was talking about being impatient and wanting more patients. And she goes, you know, I, 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 I want to pray for more patients, but I know the way this works. I pray for more patients. I'm going to get more situations that test my patients because we're not just given what we think we want. We're given these opportunities to actually learn to embody it. Yes, how could how could we learn patience or how could patience arrive arise or and develop absent of the causes and conditions where it's needed most? Mm -hmm. It's easy to be patient when nothing much is happening. 
but patience really only grows and develops when when it's uh, we're up against something that really requires patience. Yes. So I'm going to talk about the other patients for a moment, the people that that we're trying to help. How much? How do I phrase this? And 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 in a way, it comes back to what you were just talking about about what is good doctoring. Is good doctoring taking away a person's suffering or is good doctoring helping a person learn to either transform that for themselves or in some cases you know especially as we get closer to the end of life it's not a matter of changing the trajectory uh, trajectory that we're on it's a matter of of you know walking that path recognizing where we're going so Mm. how much in, in in your clinical work, how how much of the work is about, I'm going to say, taking things away for the person, and how much of it involves helping the person sort of grow their way out of it? Well, it, it's a it's a tricky balance. Of course, in clinic, if somebody presents with pain or a terrible skin rash or cough or something like that, I'm I'm working hard to overcome those things with them. When we say that perhaps doctoring is not just the alleviation of, shall we say, physical medical conditions, but but doctoring might include looking at the way we suffer, um, that's a whole different realm. And it's one that I personally prefer, but it's, it's not necessarily what all my patients are asking for. One case comes to mind of seeing a, a, a patient who had, had a badly sprained ankle and, relatively speaking, not a major problem for Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. We can do external uh, herbs, internal herbs, acupuncture, moxa. We have many things to help with those, those problems. But her real concern was that she had sprained an ankle just prior to a long time plan that was over a year in planning getting a whole bunch of friends together to go on a skiing trip in Aspen. And now she wouldn't be able to ski. Mm. She could go on the trip, but she couldn't ski. And she had been working on this for a long time. So there's the problem of a sprained ankle, a relatively, shall we say, technical and simple problem. Mm-hmm. And then there's suffering associated with the disappointment of not being able to do something that we had hoped for. And that suffering was much greater, even in terms of um, discomfort to this person, than her ankle was. Is it the job of a, of a practitioner to help with that sort of suffering? Personally, I think it is, and I think that that's where Chinese medicine is really useful. Or another um, example is, uh, say, treating low back pain. Some people will come in and say, I've got low back pain. These three examples might all present with something fairly similar, even from an X-ray or an MRI. They might all be somewhat similar. One person will say, uh, I've got low back pain that's stopping me working. Uh, I move furniture for a living and I need to get back to work and I need you to stop the pain. And um, so-and-so referred me and they had two treatments and you fixed it. I, that's what I want. And 
somebody else might come in with a very similar presentation and say, um, I've got low back pain, I strained it, I work as a furniture mover, um, my boss is giving me a lot of pressure to get back to work, uh, we need to earn the money, but I keep getting these um, back pains and, and, um, uh, and I'd like to learn something that I could do to maybe help me not keep having these back pain, the back pain as well as get rid of this current episode of back pain. And then you, then you, I think the role we're being asked to play is that of not only as a, say, somebody to treat the back pain, but we're also being asked to be a, a teacher or an educator. And somebody else may come in with a very similar presentation and say, I've got this terrible back pain and I've been doing this job for a while and I'm doing it because my dad's, it's my dad's company and I was encouraged to go into this, but I've never really liked doing it. And I've been off for a few months now because I haven't been able to work and it occurs to me in this quiet time that I've had how much I've really used to enjoy bird watching and uh, the study of birds and I'm not so sure that I want to go back to being a furniture removalist and that maybe I should go in a completely different direction but there's all these pressures I have a mortgage to pay and expectations to return to work and yet I'm feeling uh, the desire to go off and do something completely differently and so what you hear from those three patients is that they all have a similar, shall we say, physical presentation, but they're all asking something different of their lives and they're asking us to take on a different role altogether. And so I think to have skills as a practitioner, to be able to not necessarily do everything for every patient, but even to have the skills to know a timely referral to, you know, a career counsellor or a good psychoanalyst or psychotherapist, whoever it might be, uh, a meditation teacher, but also to have some, in order to have the skills even to know how to make a referral, you have to have some personal knowledge of these, of what it is that those three different people with the same presentation or a similar presentation are asking of you and to be able to step into the role that you're being asked to play. Right. This is, um, this is actually one of the things that I really love about Chinese medicine, which is it, it's not a cookbook kind of thing, and, and it really asks the practitioner to pay attention to everything that's being said and you know you both verbally right and what the person says to you but also how the body expresses itself as well so that you yes exactly you may have three presentations of back pain uh you may treat them in three different ways and and, and with some people it's i mean it just opens up a whole different journey for them because the back pain, well, I'm thinking of you know the last person that you talked about. They're off for three months. They realize there's actually something else that they'd rather do. How lucky were they to get back pain like that? Hmm. Yeah, and and to and and they may they may not see back pain. They don't like their back pain. They don't ever want to have it again. But they may see it as some sort of um, 
out of out of that series of causes and conditions, that experience that they went through, their life changed direction. For the first scenario, it's the signs and symptoms, the, 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 that set of causes and conditions is just something to be overcome in order to return to what they were doing before. And, and I, there's not a better or worse here or good or bad, but I think as a practitioner, more people are asking us for the latter two sorts of scenarios. Like every time I get my period, I have pain. Is there anything else I can do to minimize pain rather than just manage it with, you know, one of our treatments or pain meds or something like that? What's going on? What can I do differently? Then that opens up uh, our role into looking at many other factors in life that might be contributing to, say, something that we diagnose as cheese stasis or blood stasis that's causing menstrual pain or back pain or headache. But you have to consider what are some of those other factors? Are they eating foods that contribute to stasis? Are they uh, not exercising or are they exercising incorrectly? How are they using their minds? How are they thinking and feeling about certain things? Are the ways that they're thinking and feeling, are they developing conditions that would more likely lead to stasis or more likely lead to happy-going, free-flowing nature of chi? You, uh, you bring up the word chi. It, it's such an interesting word. It's, it's, to me, it's almost, well, I find it almost impossible to translate into English. And, and because this is a show here, uh, you know, really for the general public, I'd love to get your take on on what chi is and why us acupuncturists are talking about it all the time. Well, it is tricky, and uh, and uh, I notice that my understanding of it, I guess, uh, even the way that I would try and translate it, has grown or changed a lot over the years. And we know that we can we can kind of uh, use it in translated in in a variety of different ways depending on the context that we're using it in but i i think also when when i think of just talking to a patient just as i'm talking to you michael we're just this is chi the way i'm using my voice the way you're using yours the way we're listening to each other the quality of attention of listening the way we're trying to choose appropriate words and respond carefully to each other, um, that this is this is an exchange of chi, or this is chi. Even to say that it's something between us is to, you know, even personalise it and say there's Greg's chi and there's Michael's chi, or there's just we're we're living in this chi field, and and there is this particular movement or flow or articulation or manifestation of it that's happening that that uh, we're creating as we're wandering down this interview so it's not something we can be it's not something that we just turn on or turn off or that we are trying to well let me just stop there for a minute and see see how you would respond to that mm. yeah um I, I could, thank you a couple things come up one is a book I read a few years ago 
written by an American osteopath named Robert Fulford. Are, are you familiar with him at all? No, I'm not. Okay, so he was an American osteopath and, and very talented with cranial work. And he knows, I mean, as far as I could tell, he never studied any Chinese medicine. He knows nothing about Chinese medicine. He hasn't studied any sort of Eastern philosophy, to my understanding. And yet he wrote this book, I think it's called um, Touch for Health or Touch of Life. I can't remember. I can put a link to it on the show notes page. It is hands down, for me at any rate, hands down, the best explanation of chi that I've ever read. It's like this guy totally understands this thing about something I would just say about being and exchange and, and how these things work together in health and in, and, and in illness. And it's, he just has this incredibly beautiful, simple way of, of talking about about this. So that, that's the first piece. The second piece is I was going to ask you if you're familiar with a fellow named Rupert Sheldrake. He's a biologist who came up with this idea of morphogenic fields. I am familiar a little more with his critique of uh, reductive scientific materialism than I am with his morphic fields idea. Yeah, he was... Um, as I understand him, he's a fellow who was fascinated with biology, fascinated with life, and and it was it was curious to him that at least in his study, uh, you know, formal study that they usually study dead things to try to understand live things, and and he's come up with this idea of morphogenic fields, which is really a, a sense of that there's not just physical being here that there's actually sort of a field dynamic that physical being is embedded in. And the field can have an extremely strong influence on, on the physical thing. And the physical thing can have a strong influence on the field as well. It, it's an exchange that goes both ways. Uh, so to my thinking, and especially as you were using the, the, the term chi field, uh, it reminds me very much of, of some of his work that I've read. That it's this ongoing exchange. Yeah, no, I think I think Michael, this is in our earliest texts that our liver isn't limited to the physical bounds of a liver. It's influenced by the movement of wind that we may be exposed to, the the external wind. It's um, uh, it's influenced by a planet. Our liver resonates when we walk into a room full of angry people or we see an angry protest on TV. That we, it's, it's, I think we've gotten into a habit of seeing ourselves as bounded by our skin. Whereas I think our actual lived experience is that we're easily influenced, dramatically influenced by things all around us and within us. Um, and I think qi as a, a way to try to explain a kind of a, a functional web that we find ourselves in is one of the best descriptors. I also don't think it's unique to Asian philosophy. I think that if you see a beautifully handmade coffee mug 
it may be very similar to a commercially produced mass manufactured coffee mug in terms of its uh, functional utility, but it has a quality about it, a feel in the hand, a feel on our lips that is um, unique and distinct and different. And this is when, when we hear music played, when we're stirred by a, a, a poem, we're recognizing that chi field. I hope you've enjoyed the first half of the show. Now it's time for a word from our sponsor. That would be you. You could support the effort here by popping over to everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and click on the link to support the show and leave a few dollars that will help to keep some inspiration in the teacup. You know, we run on only the finest oolong and poorer teas here at Everyday Acupuncture Podcast Central. No point in going all NPR pledge drive here to remind you that teas like that don't come cheaply. Just know that if you like the show, you can express your appreciation for these interviews with a small donation. As always, I love to get your feedback and ideas for future shows, so send those along too. Thanks again for listening, and now on to the second half of the show. Get stirred by poems on a regular basis. It's, it can completely change... Yeah, I mean, poetry, something, lots of things, they can so quickly change our emotive state. And when that emotive state changes, lots of other things shift with it. I'm sure you've had the experience, and a number of my colleagues have said over the years that sometimes there's just an exchange in a conversation with a patient, and something might happen, and a patient might be moved by something that we say or a question that we ask. And sometimes it seems as if the treatment has already happened before we even start to put in needles. And, um, you know, or, or people, as we were talking off air before, that people are influenced by the physical space of a clinic and the chi field begins with their entry into that space or maybe even prior to that, uh, thinking about coming into that space. And then the interaction with our reception staff or any assistance that we might have, it's already happening. And it seems that if we kind of ignore a lot of the actual felt experience of our life and reduce it down to it's just about putting in needles or it's just about, you know, it, it seems to limit human life experience or how we're living our life. And if we can, as practitioners, access more and more of it, I would like to think that we're better able to help our patients or more comprehensively help our patients, not just seek us for treatment, but to learn how they can also help themselves. Yes. How they understand what sorts of things do I need in my life out of which I'm more likely to experience better health, better moods, better quality sleep, whatever it might be? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm also in this conversation, I'm, I'm, uh, the thought just arose for me. I, I've had people sometimes get off the table after having acupuncture, right? And, and especially if they think that, an acupuncture treatment is simply about putting needles in. 
and, and they'll get off the table. And, and maybe I remember one woman who had this sciatica pain that she'd had for months. She'd seen all kinds of specialists. She got off the table and goes, it's not possible that my pain could be gone, is it? You know, it's just it's like, I don't know, where's your pain? She's like, I don't have it. It's not possible, is it? Right? I mean, there, there's all these ways our mind gets involved. And as you were just saying, people could, I mean, we all have the experience of walking into a, a room, maybe a sanctuary or a, or a temple or, a, you know, just some place that's got incredible feng shui or just an amazing designer. And you walk in and you go, ah. Right. I mean, you just immediately sort of settle. And there's other places we can walk into, and, and you know you just want to get out of there because it feels awful in there. And, and I think all of this does come into play when people come for a treatment. Like you were saying, what was their experience driving in? What was their experience like walking into the office? And, and these things can have an influence. This brings up for me, Another thing that I hear patients say a lot, and, and it raises this question. I have no answer to this question, but I've got the question. I keep asking it. I'm going to ask it of you just to see what you've got to say about it. They'll, they'll sometimes come back, and they'll go, you know, I'm, I'm a whole lot better, but I don't know if it's just in my head yeah. <laughs> or if I'm better. And so, so, so here's the question that I've got, and this is, this is very much our Western you know, conventional medicine, I'm going to put air quotes, scientific way of looking at things. If the mind makes the body well, we call it placebo. On the other side of this, if the mind makes the body ill, we call it hypochondria, right? Mm. My question is this, what is going on here with the mind? Mm. That there can be such an influence with the body. Well, it's a very large question. I think on on one level, when people say, uh, you know, is this is this possible? That it's part of our, shall we say, materialistic. The way we've been encouraged to think is to not rely on ourselves and our own felt experience, but to have blood tests or x-rays or MRIs or experts telling us what and how we should be feeling. Uh, uh, this is kind of very simplistic, but it's taken us away from going from a knowing that I lay down on the table with this particular pain and I get up off the table without pain, that um, I'm feeling better, I know I feel better, it's clear to me I feel better. It's clear to me because I've had several treatments with Michael that it seems related to my interactions with Michael. I can have confidence in that. That is something I can know from my own experience. I don't need any further validation than my own knowing. And I, I, I think we've lost a lot of confidence in our own knowing. Mm. Yes, yes, I would agree. And I think it's been deliberately eroded by, you know, some of the ways science gets used, not in its purest form, but kind of as a, a commercial weapon 
but it's also marketing and advertising and all that. It, it's, it's in other people's interest to have us destabilized and looking for happiness in a Kit Kat bar or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of the problem. And I think it is also a part of the problem that we have this mind-body dichotomy and that uh, we don't see that they can't really be separated. If I can wake up feeling absolutely awful and that life sucks and that things are terrible and a best friend calls up on the phone and invites me over for dinner and all of a sudden, even the heaviness and the lassitude and the the aches and pains that I was feeling before have instantaneously disappeared. And likewise, I could wake up in the morning and feeling absolutely fantastic, like the world's the best thing ever, and stub my toe and have a physical thing. And my mood, my whole worldview goes to, you know, so-and-so's out to get me. The world's out to get me and confound me. And I, I think to divide us up into body and mind is is part of the problem. It's we're not separate or those things aren't separate we have such a funny phrase here in the west we talk about the mind body connection Mm. and and that phrase right there presupposes that they're not yeah 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 Yeah, you your our our mood is influenced when we stub our toe Mm -hmm. so so how can um our actually i guess in clinic, what I try to do is encourage people to understand how are you knowing this? How, how is your knowing that your separate body and mind? You know, what is your actual experience of these things? And that the more they kind of hear questions like that, the more they become reflective and contemplative and go back and look at their experience and then they can say, Oh, yeah, you know, you're right, actually. It does seem that my hot, red, and painful, swollen acne, I wake up with it, and it seems really much better, and it's hardly red at all. But as I go through the day, and I get more stressed, and I get more tired, it gets redder and more painful and more uncomfortable. Maybe what I'm doing and how I'm doing things and what I'm exposed to even mentally or psychologically or stress in the workplace is actually affecting my physical body. And they start to make a connection. I'm struck here as we're having this conversation and recognizing that, you know, the two of us are having this conversation, but there's also people listening, right? So there's a a silent third party here with us at the same time. And, and, you know, for you and I, these things seem self-evident, Right. I mean, you practice this medicine long enough, and and it's, I suspect it's almost impossible not to recognize these deep, vast connections between what we usually will divide up as mind and body, and, and yet we are so often, you know, marketed to and sold to uh, that you know you've got this ailment you need to take this thing or you've got this problem you need to eat this or not eat that and. It's easy to grasp for a simple solution, uh, and often it's it's not a simple solution. I think it's important to uh, I've, I 
catch myself telling patients these days, this is just an example perhaps of, I, I say to them, eat food. And they look at me strangely and I go, I never used to have to say that before. But because it wasn't an option to, to not buy food. But when you go into a store these days and you see a bottle labeled milk, you just assume that it's milk. But when you read the label, it's milk solids and added this and added that. And it's, it's quite a long way from milk or yogurt or some of the other things. that. And so we're, we're not even – food isn't food anymore. We're told by all sorts of uh, elements in the food industry that we don't have time to cook, that um, it's too hard to get good nutrition even our own colleagues are saying, well, you can't get all your nutrition from food. You need to add supplements to your food. We're kind of kept destabilized in some way. And I think that's to our disadvantage. And that we can know. We can go. I do have time to cook. It doesn't take long to cook. I do know what real food is. When I walk in and I see broccoli and cabbages and um, chicken and things like that, I know what it is. I know I can eat it. I have time to cook. I can look after myself. It is within my responsibility perhaps even to learn to look after myself or relearn how to look after myself, not just nutritionally, but how do I care for my mind? How do I do these things? I think we have to kind of encourage a... We have to be doing it ourselves, but we have to encourage a kind of pushback by our patients that they can know it's not that hard. What are some ways that you help people find that stability for themselves? Well, I do. I don't do this for everyone, but I do occasionally say, do you ever have some quiet time to yourself? Do you ever take time to hear yourself? Do you ever listen? You know, are you doing the things? I know you're busy. I know you've got all of these projects on. I know you have a mortgage and you've got children and you're busy in doing these things. Uh, is there anything else that you need? Is there anything else that's important for you that may be uh, being missed in our busyness? And it's these are kind of beginning points. And some people um, find those questions really obnoxious. Uh, others kind of um, chew on them a little bit and come back and say, you know, maybe continue a conversation so we get to explore things. For some people, it's just pointing out that um, they can learn to cook again. Uh, you, you know, so should, should we say not just in a, a, a mental, emotional realm, but in a physical world, the, the realm that they can take a walk around the block. They don't need fancy exercise clothes. They don't need um, gym memberships. They can just walk around the block. That They can do simple things, rolling their shoulders when they're at their computer terminal at work and feel how these things, do they enhance their life or do they help in some way? And if so, in what way? So, uh, I think also you can do this with a cheese sensation with a needle. Um, when you put a needle in, I'm not one for getting big, strong cheese sensations anymore. 
but just to ask, how are you feeling? What you know, what's going on? Um, or when people have a reaction to a needle and they go, oh, oh, that really hurts, and to say, well, what is it that you're feeling? What's going on in your body? And and oftentimes there's a look of puzzlement come over them, but when they're gently and quiet, and if you're not um, freaking out, um, you're calm and just asking them. What is it that you're feeling? What are you? What What's going on in your body? What's happening? What are the sorts of thoughts that you're thinking? Then the person becomes. They move from kind of this um, vigilance and defensiveness against their experience to being curious about their experience. And there's a change, and they soften a little bit, and the curiosity seems um, less fraught, less difficult. And so I guess trying to initiate a curiosity, a kind of friendliness and kindliness towards the, what the person is really going through helps them feel okay about who they are. Hmm. I'm, I'm, uh, I just wrote this down over here because I'm really struck by the words gentle inquiry. Hmm. It, it's... Um, And and I'm thinking about the examples of the movers that you gave us a little earlier in the conversation. One of them is just fix it. I got to get back to work. The other ones uh, fix it, but help me fix it myself. And you know, the other one was I might need a different life. (laughs) Mm. And you know, for some people, I suspect it is just oh, I've I've this thing bothering me. Just fix it. Often, at least in my practice, I find that it maybe just the, the kind of people I attract, or I don't know, but it, it seems to be that, that many folks are, when given the opportunity to inquire a little, they start getting this curiosity that, that spreads out into all kinds of places. Let me give you an example. There was a fellow that I treated. This was long ago when I first got out of school. He had these. Uh, he had shoulder pain, one-sided headaches on his right side. He was a computer programmer, and I treated him. He went back to work. He came back the next week, and he said, "I, th- I think I'm. I think I'm okay. I, th- I think I'm over this now." And I, and I asked, "Well, how do you know what happened?" He says, "Well, I went back to work, and I felt fine. And and you know, I'm working away." And all of a sudden, I notice that my headache is back. And when the headache, when I noticed that the headache was back, I also noticed that my elbow on the hand that drives the mouse was raised up in the air. And it occurred to me, it hurts when my elbow's up in the air. He dropped his elbow, and the tension in his shoulder disappeared. And the headache started to go away. So he was like, okay, I'll just keep my, I'll just keep my elbow down here. Right? And uh, he did that until he got involved with whatever he was doing. And his elbow went back up because that was just this ha- body mechanic habit of his. And he felt the headache and he went, oh, yeah, that headache. And, oh, my elbow's up. And really within an afternoon, Greg, he recognized that when he got focused on something... He would take his elbow up, and he just learned to not take his elbow up. He would just keep his elbow down, work his mouse, and that was it, 
right? Mm. So this is this is an example of sometimes you have a, a physical experience and you start noticing some things. And sometimes it's something as simple as, oh, my elbow's up and I should have it down. I won't get headaches if I have it down. In all kinds of places where I see inquiry happening in the clinic too, you know, some people saying, I felt so good the other day, but, you know, in, in this moment it's different. I feel awful. Mm. You know, why is that? It's like, well, I don't know. It's a different moment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a really good example, Mike. It's a good example of a number of things we're talking about. And and even, say, for example, a patient that says, why am I feeling differently now? It's a, a, Different causes and conditions will bring about different feelings. And and given if, if that's a given, if that's what we can notice in our lives, then there will be times when... Uh, given what we've done, we have a really tired day or we're a little less optimistic, a little less enthusiastic. That will just be part of the course. That you, you, there's, there's no avoiding that, but there's also no need to avoid it. There's no need to resist days like that. There's no need to feel bad that we're not always up. And this is a great ease and comfort to people, I think. Um, you know, I, I, I remember seeing a patient, for example, that came in and said, I'm very depressed and I have been for a while and I'm worried about it and I've been to see various people and I don't know what to do about it. And I asked them to describe what the mood was like and they said, yeah, I feel really heavy and lethargic and I really can't be bothered and all I want to do is lay on the couch and watch movies all day and I don't want to talk to anybody, I don't want to go out. And um, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say this to everyone with depression, but for this particular person, I said, well, it sounds really normal to me. Given everything that's been going on in your life and just the amount of stuff that you've been through in the last few months, why wouldn't you need to have a retreat on the couch? Mm. And they looked at me as if some huge weight had lifted off their shoulders and that it was okay to feel the way that they were feeling that there wasn't anything wrong with them. In fact, it may have been, maybe this goes back to what you were talking about in the very first part of our conversation, that actually to have that experience of being absolutely exhausted and to recognize that they need to nurture and care for themselves in a way that they hadn't known how to do before, that they were beginning to learn that and that they weren't sick, they weren't psychologically damaged, they weren't somehow spiritually immature because they were going through this thing, all of the other burdens that we carry around, that they were just needing to slow down and take some time and nurture themselves was a huge relief to them. Yeah, yeah. I find, and again, it's not everybody, you know, it's certain patients when it, when it seems the right thing. I find myself sometimes saying, this thing that you come in with, this is not what's wrong with you. It's actually what's right with you. Hmm. All right, so, so let me give you an example. Similar to what you were just saying, someone comes in, they say, I'm depressed. I, you know, I feel awful and no energy. And, and as we get into it, I realize that maybe their mother that they loved really dearly passed away six months earlier. And they've just not been able to quite pull their life together. Right? Their life is different. And they're living in a different world. And they're having a hard time adjusting to that other world. 
And maybe one thing if the mother died five years previously, but sometimes if it's, you know, if it's recent, it's like, well, gosh, aren't you supposed to be feeling awful right about now? You know, and would you want to be the kind of person that didn't feel bad about losing someone that you loved? You know, I mean, so, it's not always like that, but sometimes it is like that. You know, it's like, it's like women who, you know, give birth and, you know, the next week they're back at work. You know, in, in Asia, women rest for a month, mm. you know, and, and they're given nourishing foods and, and they're not supposed to be out in the world. They're supposed to be recovering their energy. Sometimes it seems to me the very things that are dogging us, not always, but, you know, sometimes things that are dogging us might actually be the body's attempt or the spirit's attempt at some sort of healing, like you, you, know, like you just mentioned with this one person. But to listen to ourselves, that, that maybe, maybe that sort of depression comes about from trying to be something that we aren't or can't be, at least at that particular time, and trying to live up to, you know, I've got to keep going. I've got to keep busy. I've got to stay busy. I've got to turn up. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. Even when I don't think that I can really, it's like ignoring some basic needs, and that catches up with us after a while. And um, sometimes, then it seems we experience some setbacks that, uh, should we say, a skillful person can learn to maybe be more careful of and responsive to needs and may thereby be setting up causes and conditions that are more caring, more kindly towards ourselves, more nurturing, and therefore uh, perhaps less likely to be subject to some of the problems and woes that people that aren't paying attention to their needs and how to care for themselves are subject to. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just looking at the time here. We're getting close to an hour, and so we're going to need to wind this down in just a bit. You just mentioned listening to ourselves. And on first blush, you might think, well, how could we not be listening to ourselves? I mean, we are who we are, and you know, we're inhabiting our life. Uh, but indeed, that is often such a problem. <laughs> and I'm speaking out of my own personal experience here. Any practices or things that you suggest for the people that you treat to uh, help them hear that voice inside that might be the true voice and not the voice of, um, you know, either authority or the voice of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, I'm supposed to do something. And so, mm. you know, I'm, I'm doing it. What, uh, what, what's that word? Um, obligation. Do you have any practices or things that you share with your patients to help them sort of cut through the authority and the obligation and everything that gets in the way of actually listening to, uh, to what's been arising out of their circumstances and, and situation? As, as we've mentioned, some people come in and, and they're, they're kind of quite clear that they would like to know more of that sort of thing. And so and they ask questions about how do I develop an awareness of that or how could I know that or how do I learn that, that's, that's a little easier to respond to. For people that um, we've mentioned a few things that I do, that I ask people to pay attention to what they're feeling when they're being needled. You know, how I ask 
every time I go back into a room to see people, I ask how are they feeling? Have they changed? Do they feel that their symptoms have changed? Do they feel more or less relaxed? Or what are they noticing? And so I'm, I'm kind of doing it for them, but inviting them to take that up themselves. And every time they come in, I ask many of the same questions about various functions in their body, but also their symptoms. And so it's, uh, and uh, I say to them, between times, will you track this for me and tell me, is this changing and to what degree and how often are you noticing it now? Is, it is the frequency and duration, all of these things changing? And so all of these are kind of invitations to uh, developing an awareness, developing an attention, and in that way, listening to themselves. So uh, clinically, I do that. I also, um, you know, some people have gone on to become meditation students. And so then it's, it's really just an extension of that, of learning how to listen to themselves, how to pay attention. Simple things, Michael, like... Um, Say in a busy workday, we do many repetitive tasks like, say, pick up a telephone or turn a door handle. So to take tasks like that and turn them into opportunities to pay attention. And so when you turn a door handle, how much force do you need to use? How do you hold the handle? Which hand do you hold it with? Is it fingers or is your palm making contact? Is there a temperature sensation you notice? Mm. And then people are starting to, you know, through kind of things we can all do, is live their life as it's actually unfolding, a felt experience of their life rather than passing through their life, opening many doors on the way to the front office and not having noticed the passage to the front office. That rings true for me as well. That there's, um, there, there's, a, there's an interesting thing with the quality of attention that we bring to one thing. It, it really can become the quality of attention that we bring to everything. It's been delightful to talk with you today. Likewise, Michael. It's, thank you for the invitation. you have enjoyed this episode of everyday acupuncture podcast if so please take a moment and visit www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com where you can click on the review on itunes button to rate and review the show doing this helps other people to find the show also you can express your appreciation by supporting the show with a donation thanks for listening and be sure to tune in again next time